turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, we'll continue our study here in the gospel according to John. And we'll be looking at verses 11 through uh, 21 in John chapter 10. I don't know if you've ever felt like it's not worth following Jesus. I don't know if you've ever had that that feeling and that that uh, sense. Uh, maybe that you've gone through a kind of a trial or something, or uh, you wondered, well, if Jesus is the Lord and if He loves me, then why is He allowing me to go through this trial? Well, I don't think we understand what trials are many times. Uh, but they're God's way of drawing us closer to Him. Uh, but sometimes we might have a question, or perhaps you think, uh, you know, life was better before I believed in Christ. I seemed to have uh, more troubles and more difficulties after I got became a Christian. I didn't have all the problems that I've had since I became a Christian. Maybe that's been your th- thinking at some point. Uh, perhaps you've struggled with a disappointment because uh, your Christian experience isn't all that you thought it would be, and all the others that seem to uh, to experience. I can even say, uh, as pastor, as your pastor, there have been times when I've struggled with the work of the ministry. Uh, you know, we've talked about in the last uh, few uh, uh, le- uh, studies here in John, uh, we've talked about false teachers, um, we've talked about uh, all kinds of false teaching that is out there these days. It's invading our homes. Uh, it's invading our churches through various kinds of media, through the television, through books and magazines. By the way, there are still books and magazines. You can still read books and magazines. People still do read them, even though they might even read them on their Kindle or their tablet or their iPad. Yes, I know that some of you don't even know what I'm talking about when I say those words. But most of you do. Or maybe uh, there's some internet posting that you follow and some conversations that you've had maybe with your family or at work or at school or people promoting all kinds of things that don't line up with the Word of God these days. And so you end up trying to convince them what does the Word of God say and sometimes you feel like you're beating your head against a wall and it only stops hurting When you stop talking about it and you say, oh, what's the use? They just don't get it. I'm tired of fighting this battle, so I think I'll just go and live in the woods where at least I can shoot the predators that come around me and bother me. Oh, some of you do live in the woods. I'm sorry. Um, We are up here in the woods, aren't we? But you wonder sometimes, why should I follow Jesus? Why should I commit my life to living for the Lord and following His Word when I get so much opposition? Well, our text tonight, I think, will answer that question. I think it answers it simply. It answers it forcefully. Because Jesus is still talking to a mixed audience here. The Pharisees were there. Jesus was teaching uh, here again as a result of a division among them and 
And the man that was born blind, remember in chapter 9, who uh, Jesus healed, uh, he, he was there, no doubt, along with other believers. And Jesus' words here were aimed at warning and instructing and assuring them. And he warns them again about false shepherds, so they will not follow the false shepherds. He instructs them about himself as the good shepherd and what he provides for his flock, and he assures them of his sacrificial care for them and the fact that he will accomplish his purpose with them. And I want to point out five truths here tonight about Jesus the Good Shepherd. Jesus the Good Shepherd. And the first truth that we come to as we look at uh, the Good Shepherd is... The contrasting shepherds, the truth about contrasting shepherds he talks about. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, but the hired hand or the hireling has no concern for his sheep, as we'll see. And Jesus contrasts himself with those self-centered religious leaders and himself. And so, first of all, the good shepherd, we notice here, gives his life for the sheep. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. This is Jesus' fourth I am in John's gospel. Remember there were uh, several already that we've talked about. I am the bread of life, chapter 6. He said, I am the light of the world in chapter 8. He said, I am the door of the sheep earlier here in chapter 7, and now he, we come to I am the good shepherd here in verse 11. He repeats that also in verse 14. Four times in these verses, Jesus repeats that he lays down his life. You find him here in verse 11. You'll find also 15 and 17 and 18. In the first two, he repeats that he lays down his life for his sheep. In the last two times, he emphasizes that he lays down his life so that he may take it up again. Now, I could spend the entire message here, but just let me point point out four things about uh, the good shepherd giving his life for his sheep. First of all, Jesus' death was selfless. Jesus' death was selfless. When Jesus set his sights on the joy set before him as he faced the cross, at the same time he was giving himself for us as sinners, and that was the greatest act of selfless love in the history of the world. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died voluntarily in obedience to the will of the Father, and he wants us to know, he wants us to feel his deep selfless care for us. And the word translated here, good, in the good shepherd, has a distinction of excellence or beauty. The beauty of Jesus, the shepherd who gave himself to rescue us from God's judgment, should draw our hearts to love him. So it was selfless. Secondly, Jesus' death was sacrificial. He laid down his life for the sheep. He died in our place. Uh, We should have faced God's righteous eternal judgment because of our sins, all of our sins. But Jesus intervened with his own blood to pay the debt on our behalf. 
Jesus is the only one who ever lived who did not have any sins of his own to die for. So he alone was qualified to die for us who deserve to die. Again, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God imputed our sins to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us. Christ's death was sacrificial. Thirdly, Jesus' death was specific. He laid down his life for the sheep. The sheep are those whom the Father gave to the Son, whose names are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said this. He said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And then he added in verse 39, And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again the last day. Now in chapter 10 here, in verse 26, he tells the Pharisees, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, he does not say, Ye are not my sheep, because ye do not believe. But rather he says you do not believe or you believe not because you're not my sheep. And the determining factor is whether they were Jesus' sheep whom the Father gave to the Son. It was these that Jesus came to die and to redeem. And he didn't fail. Now this truth is often, I think, misunderstood. It's attacked because it alleged that if Jesus died only for his sheep, then we can't offer the gospel to all people. But that's a false allegation. Jesus is the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus is the Savior of the world. The almost final verse of the Bible appeals uh, to us in the sense of in Revelation twenty two seventeen, and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him that heareth say, come and let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will let him take the water of life freely. So this truth in no way limits the invitation to some people to be saved. God pleads with all to be saved. And rather, this truth looks at the death of Christ from the standpoint of God's intent or his purpose. He died actually to pay for the sins of his sheep whom the Father had given him from eternity. And he promises that he will not lose even one of them. And so this truth should assure us, if you believe in Christ, you're one of his sheep for whom he died. And he promises to keep you in eternity. His promise will not fail. And then fourthly, Jesus' death was successful. We just saw here in John 6.39 that uh, it says, And this is the Father's will, which he hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I shall lose nothing, but shall raise it up again at the last day. It's also here in our text in John chapter 10, down in verse 17, and verse 18, it's in verse 17, it says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment I have received of my Father. 
So Jesus repeats here twice that he will not only lay down his life, but he'll take it up again. Now, many claim that they will lay down their lives, but Jesus is the only one who legitimately could claim that he would take it up again. Speaking of his resurrection, and his resurrection verifies that the Father accepted his sacrifice. So as the good shepherd, Jesus gave his life for his sheep. He laid his, uh, down his life for the sheep. Secondly, we notice here the hired hand has no concern for the sheep. This is verse, uh, go back to verse 12 and 13. He says, but he that is a hireling and not the shepherd whose own sheep are not, the sheep are not, seeth, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth and the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep, the hireling fleeth because he is a hireling and careth not for the sheep. Here's the contrast that he's giving to us in the contrasting shepherds. He's contrasting his own sacrificial love and care for his sheep with the false shepherds of Israel. And he calls them hirelings or hired hands who only care about themselves. The difference is that Jesus owns the sheep because he bought them with his blood. And so when the predators come, the hired hands, they're more concerned about saving their own lives than they are about saving the sheep. And it's no great loss to them if the sheep perish as long as they can escape with their lives. The contrast means that if you follow the good shepherd, you can be assured that he cares for you more than his own life. If you're one of his sheep, he promises, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. We'll get to that a little bit later uh, as we get in further into this chapter. So first of all, we have contrasting shepherds. Secondly, we have personal knowledge. The good shepherd knows his sheep personally, and they know him. See this in verse 14 and 15. He says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now we saw that same truth earlier in chapter 10 here in verse 3 and 4, where Jesus said he calls his own sheep by name and they follow him because they know his voice. Each night the sheep would re-enter into the fold and the shepherd would examine each one. He would see whether there were any injuries or their problems uh, that needed care. Uh, he knew every sheep in, in this intimate, personal way. And the sheep knew the shepherd as well as they would, uh, would not follow the voice of a stranger. Uh, I don't know much about sheep. Uh, I haven't ever cared for them. I have been around men who've cared for their they're milk cows. I had a brother who was a, a dairy farmer, and uh, he had 60 or 7 milk cows, and he had a name for every one of them. And he, would, he could call them, you know. Uh, they'd come in, and they'd come in to be milked, and he'd name every one of them as they came in. I never did quite get that. I was only there for a, few, a short time. But, he, you know, if you milk some cows, 60 cows, twice a day for every day of the year, you're going to get to know them, right? Well, here we have a shepherd who knows his sheep. He knows them by name. Jesus does not mean that our relationship with him is just, is just as intimate as his relationship with the Father. Uh, that would be impossible. But the Father and the Son, they know each other perfectly, and there are no, nothing, there's nothing in be, uh, between them. 
Uh, Jesus knows us perfectly, of course, but there are some things that might come in to play between us and our Lord. There's our finiteness, there's our sin, and that creates a barrier, especially on our end to in our knowledge of him. So the comparison means that our relationship with our good shepherd is reciprocal, just as the relationship between the father and the son is reciprocal. Knowing God and his son is the essence of eternal life. And the crucial matter of the day of judgment will be whether Jesus knows you. Now, he knows all people, of course, but he's talking about a personal, intimate way, in a personal, intimate way. The Apostle Paul, who knew Christ more deeply probably than the most other believers ever knew him, made it clear that knowing him was his lifelong quest. In Philippians 3, in verse 10, he says that I may know him. And that's what he tried to do. He tried to uh, get to know Jesus more and more. Uh, and so Hosea also says in Hosea 6.3, uh, then shall we know if we follow on to, follow, to know the Lord. So each of us needs to ask ourselves, is that my goal in life? Is that my quest in life? Am I seeking to know my good shepherd better each day? So there's a truth of contrasting shepherds, there's a truth of personal knowledge, and then there's the truth of more sheep. The good shepherd has other sheep that he must bring into his flock. Verse 16, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Jesus referring to the Gentiles, I believe, here uh, in the context of this, uh, uh, this passage who were at that time outside the fold of Israel. And he states the necessity uh, that he must bring them, and certainly they will hear his voice and become one flock with one shepherd. Uh, This is a missionary mandate that Jesus would later give in the Great Commission. Take the gospel to all nations or people groups. And Jesus promises the success of the mission. They shall hear my voice and they shall be one fold and one shepherd. Now this ties in what we saw in verse 11, where it says the good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. Jesus did not die in vain. He died to secure salvation of his sheep and he strongly asserts here that he will succeed. There's no uncertainty here. There's no desperation in his voice. He didn't say, well, I hope that these other sheep will, li- sheep will listen to my voice because I really, 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 really want them in my flock. You know, no, that's not what he was saying. There are some kind of rather bizarre ideas that come from Jesus' comment. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Some have even tried to build a case for alien civilization somewhere in a distant galaxy to which Jesus was probably referring to. A simple explanation, no doubt, is that the gospel would would go not only to the house of Israel, but also to the Gentile world. Indeed, a contrast to the historical resistance of most Jews, the Gentile world proved to be a fertile field for the gospel. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul expanded on how Christ, uh, both Jew and Gentile, would be one in Christ. And there's no doubt that Jesus is alluding to this 
his co- this comment here when he says there will be one fold and one shepherd. And when Paul was in Corinth, he was fearful. He was thinking about leaving when the Lord appeared to him in a vision. It's in Acts chapter 18, verse 9 and 10. It says, When spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. Now Paul didn't know who the Lord's many or much people were. But the Lord knew and he assured Paul that they would come to faith as Paul would be faithful to preach the gospel. And Paul later said in 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. They were chosen before the foundation of the world, but they obtained salvation when Paul endured hardship to preach the gospel to them. And the Lord still has people whom he purchased for God with his blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. But to gain eternal life, the Lord's people must go and tell them about Jesus. We can't just say, well, if they come, they come. If they don't, they don't. We need to be faithful. John 10, 16 shows us the true unity and diversity of the family of God. We are one family in which we uh, there is no distinction between the races. Gentiles are now fellow heirs with the Jews of the promise in Christ through gospel, through the gospel. Uh, the glory of, the God, of God's family is when those from various social backgrounds and various uh, ethnic backgrounds join together in harmony to praise God for his great salvation. Now, I'm not talking about some uh, ecumenical movement here, but when people come from various parts of the world And they can hear the gospel. They too can be one of God's sheep. Remember in Jesus day. The Jews hated the Gentiles. Whom they viewed as unclean dogs. And they couldn't conceive of themselves. Being on equal standing before the Lord. Peter had to overcome his racial prejudice. Prejudice to go and give the gospel. To the Gentile Cornelius and his guests. In Acts chapter 10, he later got called on the carpet by other Jewish Christians for doing so, but God gets more glory when those who are enemies in the world become one flock in the harmony with Christ. One other truth in verse 16 here, notice, is that the Christian life is not to be lived in isolation. But our lives are to be lived in community with other believers. You know, sheep are not very good at living by themselves. They're they're very dependent creatures. They're not independent. And to thrive, they must be a part of a flock under the protection of a shepherd. And sheep that stray from the flock, many times, as we read here, get eaten by wolves. So even though you may not like some of the sheep that the Lord has brought into his flock... You need to work hard to have a harmonious relationship with them. And the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as much as you you do. In fact, love yourself. Now, if you just come to church and 
you come and leave without getting to know some of your fellow believers, you know what? You're missing one of the main sources for coming together in our church. It's a very important thing to come and hear the preaching of God's word, the teaching of God's word, but it's also very important to come and encourage one another in the Lord as believers. You know, some of you work in places where there's not much encouragement. Maybe you don't get that encouragement you need uh, during the week, but you certainly can get it here if you avail yourself to it. Church is more than just putting in your time for an hour out of the week so you can say you've done your duty. Church is more than listening to a sermon and saying, you know, I've got my spiritual meal for the week. (coughs) By the way, how many of you survive on one meal a week? I cannot understand, I dare say spiritually, you're probably not surviving if you just open your Bible once a week. And then you wonder, why should I follow Jesus? <coughs> Excuse me. So the good shepherd gave his life for his sheep. He knows them personally and they know him. He brings all of his sheep from different backgrounds into the flock under his care. And then fourthly, we find another truth here, and that's the truth of the Father's love. The Father loves the good shepherd because he lays down his life so that he can take it up again. And we read that in verse 17 and 18. Verse 17 may be difficult for some to understand. Therefore doth my Father love me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. But Jesus did not mean that he earned his father's love by laying down his life. No, the father and the son always loved one another with infinite love. It's not that the father withholds his love until Jesus agrees to give up his life on the cross and rise again. Rather, the love of the father for the son is eternally linked with the unqualified obedience of the son to the father. His utter dependence upon him culminating in the greatest act of obedience now just before him, and that's coming up here in our study in in John, and that's the cross of Calvary. There could be also the thought that Jesus' willing sacrifice elicited the Father's eternal love in a fresh way. For example, you know, I have loved my wife for over 45 years. It's been a long time. 45 years, but I've loved her. But you know what? She might do something in the week ahead that reflects her love for me. And my well, my, my love for her will, will come well up in a fresh way. And I might say something. You know, I love you for doing that. The love was there before she did it. But her deed called forth my love once again. And so it is, I think the main point that Jesus is making is that his death was not a tragic accident. He was not a helpless victim. In Acts chapter 4, it puts it this way, For a truth against the holy child Jesus 
whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before it to, to be done. You know, the sinners who crucified Jesus were responsible for their sin. At the same time, God used them to fulfill his purpose to save Jesus' sheep from their sins. So we've looked at these contrasting shepherds. We've looked at the personal knowledge. We've looked at the uh, additional more sheep. We've looked at the Father's love. And one final truth, and that is a foolish option. They're only... Uh, the only options that the good shepherd uh, we would have concerning the good shepherd is that uh, they would be a foolish uh, option or God, uh, foolishness or God, you'd be foolish not to follow him. Jesus' teaching again here caused division. Remember that. He caused division. You know, when people think, well, everything about the Christian life should be about unity. Well, Jesus wasn't all about unity. Look at verse 19. There was a division, therefore again, among the Jews for this saying. And many of them said, He hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? They may not have come to saving faith, but they were moving in the right direction. They saw Jesus could not be... Uh, de- demoniac or could not be insane. It couldn't be crazy. The only o- other option is that he was Christ. He's the son of God. And that's why John wrote this book. Of course, God had him write the book. The Holy Spirit led him to write the book. In chapter 20 and verse 31, he wrote it so that we might believe. He said, uh, again, These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his his name. He is the eternal word in human flesh. And two things prove that Jesus could not have been demon-possessed or have a devil. These are not the sayings of him that hath the devil. We read that here. In his works, can a devil open the eyes of blind If you study Jesus' words and his works as recorded in the Gospels with the Lord or with the prayer, Lord, show me the truth about Jesus and I will obey him, well, he'll answer. Jesus said in John 7, 17, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. You see, you can't play games with God. The key factor is, are you willing to follow Jesus? if the evidence reveals that he is of God. John is saying that since Jesus is the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for his sheep, you'd be foolish not to follow him. And so we come back to that question, why follow Jesus? Why follow him? Following him may result in more trials, more persecution, more uh, perhaps even martyrdom. It has for some. The author of Psalm 73 was very honest when struggling with the same question. Since he had begun to follow God, he had experienced increased trials, and he looked at the wicked who seemed to be prospering. 
And he said, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain. The wicked would come into judgment, but he himself would remember, My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The abundant life that Jesus gives consists in having God himself as our portion, both now and forever. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why should I follow Jesus? Well, this is why. Jesus is our portion. He is our life. Now and forever. And that's why you should follow Jesus as the good shepherd. I trust that as we've looked at these contrasting shepherds, we looked at the personal knowledge that he has for us, the fact that he's interested in in having more sheep, and he loves us, that we don't take the foolish option and say, well, I'm, I'm not interested. Because foolishness is to reject Jesus Christ as the good shepherd. The right conclusion is to follow him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you.